Well, then looking to uh, God for his uh, guidance and his help, let's uh, turn together to that uh, passage we read in Exodus and uh, chapter 15. (coughs) And from verse 22 right down to the end of the chapter. We read, of course, in verse 23 that they came to Marah and could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. And uh, this is the first uh, port of call that Israel make on their journey through the wilderness. So we are returning tonight just to consider this wilderness journey that Israel made. And uh, after the crossing of the Red Sea, that's really where the wilderness opens out before them. And having crossed that Red Sea and being full of uh, gladness and believing, we're told, God's word in a special way again, it's no doubt uh, with joy that they begin to step out, beginning their Christian journey, as we all do when we come to faith when the blood covers our sins and when the power of sin is broken, we pass through into new land and the Lord is at our head. We saw that this morning in the pillar of cloud and fire. Now I think it's probably fair to say that they have three expectations as they set out in the wilderness. And the first is that they would very soon be in the promised land. They know already, of course, that the way that they're taking is not the ordinary way. It's not the direct route, the established trade route, which, of course, went through the land of the Philistines and would only take 11 or so days. They know they're not taking that route, but even if it's indirect, they still expect that within a month they will be in the promised land. Little did they know that it would be 40 years later. And hardly any of them would be alive to see it. The second thing that they expected is that all their needs would doubtlessly be very easily provided for. After all, the God who took them out on this journey to liberate them from slavery is surely a God who will provide for the journey until they arrive in the land of promise. The third thing that they expected doubtless is that their troubles are over. After all, God spared them a fight with the Philistines. Not only that, they were encouraged to believe that the Egyptians that they saw perishing was a nation and a people that would never uh, harass them again on this journey. So I suppose they had every reason to believe that their conflict was over. And in many ways that really reminds us as believers of ourselves when we began the journey too, with the exception of the expectation that the journey would be short. I doubt perhaps that many of us think of it as being that short. We have no idea how many years the Lord will give us before we arrive in the promised land that awaits ourselves. But I think we do deep down expect that the journey will be a relatively easy one at the beginning of our Christian lives. We think that will be so. And we also certainly believe that God will supply our needs. And it's not without reason that we believe that. Of course, God has promised to do precisely that. And we have so many assurances of it. I mean, even in the morning we sang Psalm 23, which we know so well, and which tells us that our good shepherd leads us into green pastures and gives us to drink beside the still waters and even in the presence of our enemy he furnishes a table and anoints our head with oil. And as the apostle says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So we too expect these things But these are just selective scriptures. They 
don't really present the whole story. The reason they're selective, I suppose, is because we like to select them. And we like to think on uh, the promises of God like that, and we don't like to think of any conditions that may be attached to them. We forget that there is a reason for the wilderness. Uh, we don't automatically go to the promised land because God fits us first for the promised land. The wilderness is to prepare us for it, and it prepares us for it through the process of learning not to lean on ourselves, but to lean properly on God. Now, certainly the first acting of that kind of faith began when you trusted in the Lord. But it's only the first acting. We don't realise, none of us really, just how far we have to go when we begin that kind of life. And so the wilderness teaches us. It shows us ourselves. shows us how full we still are of sin. And it shows us our increasing, our ever-increasing need of God for every aspect of the spiritual life. I was just uh, thinking in another place recently of the old saying, which some people don't like, that we need to let go and let God. And I, I mentioned that some people don't like that saying because there's a sense in which we can't let go. Uh, the sense that we must work at our own sanctification, which is true. But it still is nonetheless true that we must learn to let go and to let God be the author of our comforts and of our happiness and of our life generally. And that's why Moses can say, when he's about to die himself, <clears throat> 40 years later, at the age of 120, uh, he looks back in his closing address to the children of Israel, just before they're inheriting the promised land after all their wanderings. He says this to them, that you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. It's all there really. It's all there. He led you in the wilderness to humble you, to test you, to know so that even you would know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And that is the reason for the wilderness. Now, of course, <clears throat> the wilderness is hard enough, but you can make it harder for yourself. There's no doubt about that. And the experience of Israel proves it. It could have been easier than it turned out to be. They made it hard by their persistent unbelief and disobedience. It added 40 years to their pilgrimage. And who knows how many a twist and a turn we could avoid ourselves, perhaps if we were quicker to learn faith and obedience to God. So the wilderness at best is hard, but like I say, you can make it harder for yourself. Now then, having just said these few things, the journey, of course, begins from the Red Sea. And as they head out, well, lo and behold, the pillar of cloud and fire that we saw in the morning begins to lead them southeast and not northeast. Now, they would have probably hoped for northeast because southeast is very simply heading towards very dry and barren desert land. So it seems to be the case right away that they're not simply avoiding the Philistines, they are going further south and into the desert. Now it doesn't take long in that kind of climate to begin to feel the difficulty. And on the third day they're feeling very, very thirsty and there's still no sign of a water supply. Now to us, you know, this sounds... Not much of a big deal, but it was a big deal. Uh, the established route to the northeast 
would have water supply. That's one of the reasons it was an established route. Uh, the <coughs> trader passing that way would know where to stop and where to find water. But they're going into barren territory. That's not mapped out. They don't really know it. They don't know it at all. And neither for that matter does Moses know it himself. And so the lack of water after three days' travel is a huge concern. You have two million people and livestock and people becoming intensely thirsty with all the irritability, the anger and the impatience that that brings. But at last, they come to a water supply. But when they drink it, they discover that it's not really drinkable or that it's bitter and probably even diseased and dangerous because you'll notice that towards the end of the passage there's a sense that the water hasn't just been made sweet but it has been made healthy. We're told in verse 26 that God said to them, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So there's at least a hint that the water wasn't just bitter, but that it was harmful. And that was adding to their thirst. Now, of course, the great question is, in the light of what they saw this morning, the pillar of cloud leading them every step of the way for 40 years till they got to the promised land, the big question is, why does God lead them to water that is undrinkable or even harmful? It's obvious that there is some kind of lesson to be learned. God is teaching them something. So let's look a little more closely at this experience then, and I hope as we do that we'll be able to relate it to our own experience as well. And we'll just follow the same pattern as we followed when we looked at the experience of the Red Sea. First of all, the test. What kind of test is it? <clears throat> Second, the way that they respond to the test. And then third, the way the Lord responds to that and heals and delivers them. So, Let's begin with the test. Now, God tests us. He doesn't tempt us. He may allow the devil to tempt us, but he certainly does test us. Now, I'm sure we all know the function of a test. There are lots of tests in life. Teachers professionally set tests all the time for pupils. God is our master, and he sets tests for us too. We can look at a test in two ways, I suppose. In one way, a test discovers what exactly we've learned and what progress we've made. And so we discover what we need to learn, or perhaps, sad to say, what we need to re-learn. And I'm sure you discovered as a Christian that you've had a lot of resets in your life. A lot of resets. But that's the function of a test. These tests will continue in life until the lessons that God wants us to learn are learned. A final examination always comes. I mean, let's say you're in school and let's say you're on fifth year or something like that and, and, you, and you've got your hires coming up. You'll have had a series of exams. In fact, all the way up to fifth year, your exams are preliminaries until you come to the prelims. And then, of course, you've got your hire, and that's it. If you pass or fail that, well, you pass or fail it. The judgments of God are like that. Life has a series of judgments from God. We, we all, a series of tests from God, and to some extent we all sit them. Whether we're Christians or not, there are exams that we sit from God. But, of course, there's a final exam, and that exam is on the day of judgment. And whether we pass or fail that, I mean, that's the end of it. If, if we pass that searching examination, if we are found in Christ, not having our own righteousness, but his righteousness, and if our life bears that out in faith and works, then absolutely we pass. If we fail, you failed. No appeal. 
no appeal based on any past conduct or anything. You failed, and you fail forever. So every exam will teach a lesson until the final exam when no more lessons can be learned. And it's vital to remember that. God is patient, long-suffering. He's teaching you and he's teaching me. He's teaching you whether you're a Christian, teaching you whether you're not a Christian. But unless we learn, we'll fail. And the judgment of that, of course, is everlasting condemnation and hell itself. Now, God is ensuring, of course, that his own people are actually purified and prepared by these trials. He sees to it that they do pass them, although they take a long time, and like I say, many resets. Now, the Bible tells us not to despise God's trials and not to be discouraged when they come. And, of course, when they do come, we tend to be discouraged by them. Sometimes we tend to despise them, we tend to kick against them, and we tend to say, well, these tests are too hard, too difficult. Uh, nobody can be expected to pass these tests, but that's not the way in which we should meet the tests that God sets before us. Well, what is the nature of the test here at this water? Who knows what it's called first? It comes to be called Mara because of the way they respond. But what was the nature of the test? Well, the nature of the test is very straightforward. It's to see what they've learned at the previous test. Just a few days before. You remember when they came to the Red Sea, the psalmist tells us that they rebelled there. They rebelled against God. But we saw how God intervened and how he taught them a great lesson there. He divided the sea. He brought them across the dry land. The sea closed back in upon their enemies. And on the face of it, you would have said that they learned a lot. They saw the Lord's power. We're told that they believed the word of God that day and that they trusted in Moses that day. So you'd have said, lesson learned. And in fact, in chapter 15, you have the song which they sang. And they sang it with great triumph. We would believe with spirituality, with great gusto, that the Lord has cast the horse and his rider into the sea. We sang it too in Psalm 106 and in verse 8 that he saved them although they rebelled by the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake that he might make his mighty power known. So he was revealing his power at the Red Sea for their sake. He rebuked it and dried it up and he led them through the depths. And in verse 12 we read that then they believed his words and then they sang his praise. So the question is now, just after a few days' journey, how will they respond to a lack of water and to the uncertainty about where they will find it and how long they will take? Right, again, you know what they should do. So do I. Seems very basic. They should come to the Lord with their difficulty. In humble prayer and supplication. Asking the God who is their guide and who has brought them into the wilderness now to provide for them in the wilderness. And when I say a humble prayer, I mean a humble prayer. You'll remember at the Red Sea that they did cry to God but once they finished crying to God, they turned round to Moses and started tearing strips of him, which was a sure sign that the prayer they had offered to God was of no value at all. It was a simple complaint, it was a grumble, and it was a discontent. So we would expect here, having learned that lesson, a humble prayer of faith, of thanksgiving to God what for what he had delivered them from, everything that was so difficult in Egypt, including the might and power of Pharaoh, a prayer of faith and expectation that he would lead them to water 
and not allow them to perish with thirst in the wilderness and then simply wait upon the Lord. Because he would intervene and he most certainly would provide. But you look for that kind of prayer of faith in vain. Read the passage. It just simply isn't there. And their sin lies in omission before it appears in commission. In other words, you see their sin in what they don't do and what they don't say before you see it in what they do and what they say. In fact, Psalm 106 and verse 12 tells us that once they believed his words and sang his praise, yet they forgot his works and did not wait on his counsel and his will. Now it's staggering to find things like that one against the other, is it not? Mm. To sing praise, to believe his word, then before the sentence is finished, to forget his works and not wait on his counsel and his will. In fact, not only did they not wait to see what God would do for them, they didn't even ask. They didn't ask. They didn't ask the one who says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. No, they didn't ask. Now, I think, friends, we can say this, that all God's dealings with us in this life are to bring us to the place where we simply trust himself and obey him with a quiet, humble, simple faith. All his dealings with us are to bring us to that place. And isn't it astonishing how difficult it is to get us there? How determined we are to trust ourselves before we trust God. And the first sign of a, a really practical living faith in Christ, the first sign of it is prayer. There's no doubt about that. For too many of us, far too often, prayer is a last resort instead of being a first port of call. Think, think of the difficulties you've had yourself in your own life. Think of how long perhaps it took you before you really went down before the Lord and earnestly sought his face about the matter. Think of how much you struck out yourself, how much you put your own paw into it, how much you interfered, how much you tried to sort people out, change people's minds. You did this, you did that, you moved to the right, you moved to the left, but not called upon the name of the Lord. Maybe you thought it was too small a matter to call upon the name of the Lord for. No, friends. No. It's only when we learn to pray that we are ceasing from self and really depending <clears throat> upon God. That's why prayer was, is, and always will be the real barometer of your spiritual life and mine. It's the test as to whether we are relying on God or relying on ourselves. And I mean the test. It is the test as to whether we are relying on God or self. A person who relies on God prays, period, person who doesn't rely on God doesn't really feel the need to pray. They can manage with might and with power. And so how significant that there is no mention in this passage of calling upon the name of the Lord. What we are told about them is what they did eventually do. And here we have it in verse 24. The people complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? This word complain is very often translated murmur. They murmured. In some ways murmuring is a more interesting word because it's onomatopoeic. It uh, carries the sound in itself of people who are just murmuring. Uh, murmuring against the Lord. Murmuring against him and murmuring with each other against the Lord and, of course, against Moses. There's an inevitability about that, too. Now, we can't minimise the importance of murmuring and complaining. You might say, oh, well, you know, that's not 
claim against Moses. But even to complain against God, it's not, it's not really the worst thing, is it? To complain against God. But you'll notice that it became a repeated behavior in the people of Israel. A repeated behavior. So much so that it was the tenth occasion of murmuring that actually made God send them deeper into the wilderness for 40 years. When they actually refused to enter the promised land because of unbelief. That's another story. You remember that the spies went up to spy it. Two spies brought back a positive report. Ten spies brought back a negative report. Said we can't enter in. Far too difficult. We can't conquer this land. The whole congregation was swayed by the unbelief of the ten. Not by the faith of the two. Again, these things are always amazing. You'd have thought a whole congregation of God's people would be attracted to the faith of the two. No, they were swayed by the unbelief of the ten. And the result is that the Lord said to them, Because these who have seen my glory and the signs I did in Egypt, because they put me to the test these ten times, ten here again is completeness, fullness of testing, God is wearied with it. Because they have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. My servant Caleb, and Joshua too, of course, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. But of course the congregation were to wander for 40 years. And why? Because they murmured against the Lord. Friend, beware of complaining. And I say that because we do it easily. You know? we, we do it quite easily. We do it quite quickly. Uh, murmuring against a providence and murmuring against a difficulty. Murmuring about where the Lord has put us and the heat or the difficulty of the situation. Not a small thing to God. And it will doubtless make the wilderness harder for ourselves. Now, I'm sure we can all understand that the presence of murmuring means the absence of prayer. The presence of murmuring means the absence of prayer. And their murmuring was in their hearts long before they expressed it to Moses. As it is with ourselves, it doesn't come out straight away, it's just there in the heart. They say that an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, a good wholehearted prayer a day would keep murmuring away. And there's no doubt that if we stayed close to the Lord, then this complaining would be very, very far away from us. But lo and behold, here it was. That's their response to God's test. Now you may well say to me, well, how can that be so? How is it actually possible to move from praising God wholeheartedly to actually murmuring against him in the space of three days? How can that be possible? You could say, well, it was difficult enough to believe that they could actually rebel at the Red Sea, having just witnessed the plagues that fell upon Egypt. That was hard enough to believe. But it's actually harder still to believe that in three days they can move from praise to complaint. Well, I'm tempted to say that the first response to that is, are you sure that that hasn't happened to yourself? Have you moved from sincere, wholehearted praise to God in the space of three days uh, to murmuring and complaining. But let me give another reason for it. It's not just a matter of how inclined we are to unbelief anyway. It's not because of our pro propensity just to be discontent very quickly. There's actually a deep spiritual reason why they could move so quickly from the one to the other. And it's because of this. And I want you to take this to heart, myself too. Your spiritual condition is not improved by anything 
that's done for you outside of you. It's only improved by something that is done inside of yourself. It's as simple as that. In other words, how you respond to the thing that's done outside of yourself. Suppose the Lord were to make the sun stand still tomorrow. Suppose he was to make the earth move and shake. It won't do you one little bit of spiritual good unless you, as the Puritans used to say, improve it, use it, do something with it. Otherwise, it's just a wonder that comes and goes. You'll be none the better spiritually for it. If the Lord does something for you, you've got to improve that. You improve it simply by meditating on it properly, giving thanks for it properly and spiritually, and praying over it, turning it to good account, so that the praise you sing and the prayer you offer is intelligent and spiritual, and there will be a real spiritual growth in response to the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptians. Because let me say again, it doesn't matter how great the thing that was done, if you don't improve it, it profits you nothing. Absolutely nothing at all. So the real question is, do <coughs> learn from what God does for us? Or do we let it somehow go? Perhaps you can think, maybe if you can't think right now, maybe if you go home you can think of things that the Lord did for you in the past. And maybe realise that, well, I didn't really improve that. I didn't give enough thanks, enough acknowledgement, didn't pray enough over it, didn't think enough over it as to what it actually meant, what it was actually teaching me, and the behaviour that it was supposed to produce in me. I didn't really think about that. Not enough. It didn't really change my life in the way in which it should have changed my life. And hence, three days afterwards, quick to complain, still slow, to pray. What does the Lord do? Well, significantly, he doesn't take them to Elam, which I would guess is where he would have taken them. But he took them first to Mara, which is what? A disappointment. Disappointment. So he'll give them what they want, water, but there's a bitterness in it. Because the Lord will often give us what we want because we deserve it. And he'll send leanness to our souls. And he'll use that experience to bring us to a place where we crave for himself properly again. He can curse our blessings. I don't know if this water was always bitter, or maybe it's the case that the Lord just made it bitter. One way or another, he took them to bitter waters. And sometimes when you're out of your place, you want something which you think will satisfy you, whether naturally or spiritually, and you'll discover that it's not really what you thought it was at all. Uh, sometimes that can happen to people. I've known people in the past who have been languishing. Let's take the spiritual realm first. I, I know they've been languishing in churches that don't really have any spiritual life in them. The, the word is not really there. And they're, they're wanting something like that. But instead of going to where it is, they'll, they'll go to a church that has what people call vibrancy. That's always associated. Our church is vibrant, people say, whatever on earth that means. I'd rather hear it was spiritual, but it's vibrant. It's got a great youth program, or it's got a whatever, it's got this and got that. And they go, perhaps they even go for their children's sake. But then they discover that not only are they dying, but their children are dying too. Because it wasn't really water. Or it was bitter water. It wasn't what they thought it was going to be. A person may end up like that, determined to have a relationship with somebody. Absolutely determined that they're going to have this relationship. And they think the Lord will bless that relationship. And into, the, into that relationship they go. And it's bitter. Because the Lord makes it bitter. Because their priorities were not really right. They were not God-centered. And sometimes, through pain, we discover that it's Mara. It's Mara. Bitterness. 
can be true of natural things as well. The most famous use of the word in the Bible is the passage that I read earlier with you, where Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. She says, call me Mara. It's an interesting example to follow out. She was in Bethlehem, a woman of God, married, husband, two sons, A time of famine came into the land. Now, when you read that, you think, well, it's excusable to leave the promised land in a time of famine. But it wasn't famine, famine. It was just scarcity. For example, Boaz uh, is quite able to to run his farm and keep his family in the time of scarcity. So it wasn't necessary to leave the promised land. God would provide in Bethlehem, the house of bread, Bethlehem. He would provide bread for his people all. But Naomi had a different standard of life and a different standard, different expectation, and she decided to move to Moab. Not a good move, not a wise move. There's no godliness in Moab. And she didn't go there to evangelize the Moabites. Uh, she might have excused herself for that reason at the time, because that's, that's what we do when we make bad decisions. We always find a way of justifying them. And there always is a way of justifying something. If you look hard enough, She just wanted a better life in Moab. What was the result of that? She lost her husband. She lost her two sons to death. And when she comes back ten years later to Bethlehem, the people can hardly recognize her. She's passed through a lot. It's this Naomi, they say. She said, don't call me that anymore, she says. Call me Mara. Because the Lord, she says, has dealt bitterly with me. He's given me bitterness. Of course, the reason God has given her bitterness is because she herself was originally bitter against God. So the Lord gave her water that was undrinkable. It's an interesting thing that God did let her go to Bethlehem. When we are hard-headed, he does sometimes just not stop us. That's just the fact of the matter. We'd always like maybe God to stop us if we're definitely in the wrong, but sometimes he says, well, if that's what you want, take it, go for it, and we'll see what comes of it. So God let her go, not just to test her, but to teach her a lesson. And it could be that what we choose ourselves brings us disease as well as unhappiness. You just don't know. Maybe even when you go to that church that seemed so good, you might actually get a sickness in your soul from it. It's not just that you're not fed, it's that you're ill. But the Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to wrath, and he does provide healing. The first healing that he gives is through means of the tree. He shows Moses a tree that is to cast into the water because he says, I am the Lord that heals. Now that reminds us that sometimes the Lord can take a bad providence that can't really be changed but he actually brings sweetness out of it. Maybe it's a thing from which there's no going back once you've chosen it. But actually, if you do learn to pray in it, he'll put a tree into it. Can we just take that as a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the tree of life, the cross, the tree by which our sins are dealt with? He he puts himself into the water to sweeten that water. Because fellowship with Christ will sweeten any providence. And it's a remarkable thing that even in Moab, where Naomi feels this bitterness of life, you know, Moab wasn't what she thought it was going to be, it just wasn't. But lo and behold, Ruth, Ruth, a daughter-in-law, who'd have thought that? She came from nowhere, a Moabitess, but in God's good time she came under the influence of her mother-in-law and came to share her mother-in-law's favour. So even in the bitterness of Moab, well, the Lord cast a tree into her water, and it just became sweet 
taste. So God does that. Whatever you portion, if it cannot be changed, God will sweeten it. If it, he, can, he can change it too, if he so wishes, but if it cannot be changed, he will sweeten it. The second thing the Lord does is he gives a counsel to them. We're told in verse 25 that after Moses cast the tree into the waters, the waters were made sweet, there at Marah he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. So he gave them a commandment, a statute of some kind. What was the statute? Well, I think it's what's referred to in verse 26. He says, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, listen to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now here's a reminder to them that they've been saved unto holiness. And if they don't learn holiness as God is teaching it, then eventually they will catch the diseases of the Egyptians. Now you'll notice that this is diseases, not plagues. <clears throat> And in fact, uh, many people just interpret these diseases as plagues, but they are actually distinguished from them in the Bible. He's not referring to the plagues with which he visited Egypt. He's referring actually to the diseases that were rife in that land anyway. Uh, again, <clears throat> when God is uh, telling his people how to live, to walk in his statutes, keep his commandments, he says, I'll give you rain, produce, <clears throat> You'll eat your bread, you'll drink your wine, you'll dwell in your land in safety. And then he says, if you don't obey me and observe my commandments and despise my statutes, he says, I will bring a wasting disease on you and fever that will consume your eyes and bring sorrow to your heart. Again, he tells them later, that when you are gathered in your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you will be delivered into the hand of your enemies. <clears throat> just one more example that Moses gives them again, just before he dies. Um, essentially the same thing, but he makes it more specific. He says, if you are disobedient to me, he says, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, also with tumors, and with scabs and itch from which you cannot be healed. Now, what are these diseases? Well, it's no secret that many of these ancient civilizations were destroyed by diseases. Uh, sometimes whole communities were ravaged by them, and particularly diseases that were spread uh, sexually, sexually transmitted diseases that are still around. Gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, things like that. They actually destroyed people. We, we're familiar again with cures and vaccines and things of that kind, but these things wiped whole peoples out. And there are clear traces in the archaeology of these people that vast communities were destroyed by diseases like that. Now that's because people drifted away from the commandment that God gave, a lot of which had to do with sexual purity and with marriage and things of that kind. And the Lord says, live as I call you to live. In communities, be the communities I call you to be. In families, be the families I call you to be. And as individuals, be the individuals that I call you to be. And I won't visit you with any of these things. But what's the connection between that and the bitter waters of Mara? Well, it's actually very straightforward. If they start to murmur and complain, it won't be too long until they begin to live ungodly lives themselves. They'll begin to hanker after Egypt. They'll want to go back. And if they do go back, or go back in their lifestyles, then they'll discover that they come under the judgment that Egypt merits. Because it is only the people of God that strive for holiness. Anyone who claims to be but does not strive for holiness will eventually return to Egypt and will perish with the Egyptians. In other words, what God is saying to the Israelites here is, look, 
Learn this, learn it, Shah, that if you live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. And above all, learn to pray. Let me just close by saying that immediately after giving them such a commandment, he brings them to Elam, which means a place of trees. Seventy trees and twelve wells. The wells here are not... Uh, ordinary wells of water they're, they're what Christ uh, met the woman of Samaria the, the, oh no, no he spoke to her about living water wells that are essentially fountains subterranean channels that break out and are apparently ne- never ending really I mean they're always running there twelve wells one for each tribe seventy palm trees seven times ten you have your two perfect numbers there is a, an abundant provision that God makes for his people. Uh, He's taught them the lesson and he now gives them opportunity to learn. And he's essentially saying, look, um, there's no need for Mara really. No need for Mara. If if you learn to pray and to wait upon the Lord, this is my provision for you. Even in this wilderness of a world, there will be a kneeling for you and plenty palm trees to provide rest and cover for you in this wilderness. The numbers 12 and 70 themselves are, are interesting in their own way. There were 12 disciples and 70 disciples sent later to preach the gospel. I don't know if there is a connection. Is it connected with the ministry of the word? I'm not sure, to be honest. It's something I'd still like to think about and pray over. But certainly 12 is for each tribe and 70 is 7 times 10. Can we say that the lesson is learned? Well, we can say it's been taught. But as to whether it's been learned or not, only time will tell. Let us pray. (coughs) (coughs) O Lord, we say with the apostles themselves, teach us to pray. And teach us too to wait upon your counsel and your will. For he who believes shall not make haste. And deliver us from thinking that we can resolve matters ourselves in this world. Help us to learn dependence for everything, from the least to the greatest. Nothing is accomplished by power or might only by the Spirit of the Lord and teach us that prayer humbles us and glorifies a great God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Uh, We'll (coughs) close our worship singing the same psalm that we had last. That's Psalm 81. says that he'll fill their mouths if they just learn to open them. But yet, in verse 11, my people to my voice would not attentive be. And even my chosen Israel, he would have none of me. So to the lust of their own hearts I them delivered, and then in counsels of their own they vainly wandered. Then God says, and this comes from his heart, Oh, that my people had me heard that Israel my ways have chosen. I had their enemies soon subdued, and my hand turned on their foes. In other words, instead of a hand chastising them, I would have turned my hand on their enemies. The haters of the Lord to him, submission should have feigned. But as for them, their time should have forevermore remained. He should which is here, he would have also fed them with the finest of the wheat of honey from the rock thy fill I should have made thee eat. These verses to God's praise. We stand and sing them. <coughs> 